Welcome back in listeners to another exciting episode of the Broadway Bulletin. Not a hugely uh, active week here in the theater district, but still the work going on. So why don't we just jump right into it? And Juliet began previews on October 30th at the Stephen Sondheim Theater. And I am excited for this new show. It's, uh, you know, what if Juliet didn't kill herself kind of thing. Uh, set to a lot of pop music. Seen a lot of Katy Perry, so I'm pumped for it. Woo woo. Um, turning our attention to Broadway history, Wicked celebrated its 19th anniversary on October 30th and is now embarking on its 20th year here on Broadway. The Kite Runner closed on October 30th and is set to go out on a national tour and of North America. Yes, and that is a fantastic show. And the next show to come in at the Helen Hayes Theater uh, is between Riverside and Crazy. So that's exciting. On November 1st, the Brooks Atkinson Theater was officially renamed the Lena Horn Theater, making it the first venue named in honor of a black woman. Uh, so that is the second theater again that we've had renamed this year. Of course, the James Earl Jones being the other one. But that's exciting. So mm-hmm. officially renamed. A Man of No Importance opened officially off-Broadway at Classic Stage Company. Yes, shout out to Taisha Scott and the entire company of Classic Stage Theater uh, for this incredible show opening, starring friend A.J. Shively as well as Jim Parsons and Mayor Winningham. Uh, excited to see the show coming up. It's supposed to be a great show, and it's John Doyle, who's the outgoing artistic director and brilliant director, uh, his final show there. Whitney White will be directing uh, an MCC workshop of the musical Hearts Beat Loud, which is based on the 2018 indie film. I love that film. Yeah, so get excited for that. Hopefully we'll be seeing a fully realized production of that soon. Candor and Ebb show New York, New York will arrive at the St. James Theater this spring, directed and choreographed by Susan Stroman. I feel like that's just like her theater, the St. James Theater. You know, the producers, Bullets Over Broadway, like everything that she does. I mean, she did POTUS this last year at the Schubert, but I feel like all of her big musicals, St. James. (laughs) Yeah. The Paper Mill Playhouse has announced the new production of Hercules that will play from February 16th to March 19th. So that should be really exciting. Yes. I've been hearing a lot about this production. Yeah. So rounding things out, I think we should just mention a couple of the shows that we've seen in the last week. Um, starting with Top Dog Underdog, which was fantastic. This is uh, the 20th anniversary revival being done down at the Golden Theater. Um, and again, a full review is going to be available for our patrons. But um, this show really was just performed, designed, directed, all of that just beautifully and perfectly. And the story is incredible. And I will say I've never heard audience reaction like that in my life. So very, yeah, very worthwhile seeing. And the other show I want to mention is actually at 5959, which is The Unbelieving. Okay. And it's based off of a real study and real transcripts about leaders of churches, pastors, priests, what have you, who actually don't believe in God. Huh. And yeah, so they, this person from, oh, I can't, a Tufts University conducted this interview and everybody was anonymous where they basically they were, you know, tell us about your experience. What are you feeling? What are your thoughts? And it really just challenged your morals and ideas and everything like that. And it was very fascinating. Um, all different religions. 
So that was a really, really good show, really well written. And like I said, just made a good show that makes you think without forcing you to think, you know? Mm-hmm. So I really appreciated that. Um, I guess we should wrap up the show. And with that, uh, just a couple of announcements from us. We will be returning to our regular and new scheduling uh, next week. So don't, don't expect to see <laughs> episodes coming at you every day. Be prepared for it to come up twice a week as planned, um, which either, depending on how you've liked the last couple of weeks, is going to be a great thing or not all a thing. But um, yeah, we'll be going back to our regular scheduled programming. Um, and also, as we head into you know November now, the month of giving and thanks, we really would appreciate uh, if you're able to become a patron of our show. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Becoming a patron is the best way to help us ensure that we can continue to bring you content um, that you've loved, you know, you love. So So thank you to all of our patrons and thank you to anyone who's considering to be a patron. It means the world to us. And so now we are going to switch it over to our 51st. Wow. 51st Whisper in the Wing episode. Uh, We sat down with director Max Hunter, um, who uh, is directing the play George Chaplin over at the New Ohio Theater. This is a fun conversation, so we hope you enjoy it. Welcome back in listeners to a wonderful new episode of Whisper in the Wings. We have a fun guest for you today. Joining us is the director of the upcoming show, George Kaplan, which is playing November 15th through December 3rd at the New Ohio Theater here in New York. Uh, That would be Mr. Max Hunter. Max, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is uh, really exciting for us to, to get to talk about George Kaplan a little bit, so I appreciate it. Yes, I'm very in- intrigued and interested because when I got the email about the show and I saw the, the poster art for it, uh, I immediately recognized it because I was like, oh my gosh, it's Alfred Hitchcock, North by Northwest. And I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a, like the biggest Hitchcock fan, but anytime it would be on the like TCM, I'd stop and I'd have to watch it. You know, It's Hitchcock, uh, but I have seen North by Northwest. It's a great thrilling film, but I was like, this can't be that like a play version of it you know like is this really i'm you know immediately the ears went up and i was like i'm intrigued so why don't you tell us a little bit about the show listen some broadway producer right now is screaming because he just got the rights to north by northwest and he's like you're ruining you're ruining it um no thank yeah i uh the 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 imagery uh is illegally stolen from north by northwest because sort of in in the weird confluence of what this play sort of speaks about, it's rooted in the identity of this George Kaplan figure who among many other sort of iterations and appearances in the space of time in popular culture does make an appearance in North by Northwest. So I sort of thought, and I'm very excited to sort of that, hear that that was your reaction. I think this is the most immediately accessible uh, in to a play that, that, that really spans the gamut of what it's trying to discuss. I think having a linchpin in sort of popular culture that is not too distant in the past, I think is a great sort of entry into 
uh, a world that seeks to sort of unpack a lot of that. Awesome. Well, now I'm really intrigued because, you know, not knowing that it's like, yeah, it's not necessarily that it's over here. Great. Game on. Let's 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 go with this. So how did you come upon the show? So this is a play that was written in French and has been done in, in lots of languages all throughout Europe. Um, we did a play in 2019 uh, called See You. Uh, which was by this phenomenal French-Canadian playwright, Guillaume Corbet. And sort of in the exploration, that was, that was this company's first uh, crack at non-US or not original or not an English-themed, English-English language theater. So that was a really lovely sort of uh, deep dive into more European sensibilities, especially with playwriting. And they do it so much more interesting. I mean, American theater is fantastic. But chances are good it's going to take place in a living room and a family's going to come in and squabble about a secret and then a dish gets smashed and then it's blackout and that's the end of the show, right? And that's sort of like a, a very gross exaggeration of what the American theater is. But in uh, European playwrights sort of have no uh, form, uh, understanding or agreement to this, this Western sort of style of storytelling. So CU was very um, surrealistic and... Uh, touched on very specific human themes, but in a very, in, in a way that is only accessible in the theater, in the theatrical medium. You could not make an HBO miniseries based on that play. And we really loved it. I think some of the same artists are still working on George Kaplan, but it also introduced me to a larger network of, of, of fans and sort of supporters of this kind of storytelling. So long story short, we we're gonna take CU to Edinburgh Fringe, of course, then there were two years of COVID. But in, in, the, in the ramp up up to that, this play was um, presented to me by uh, the by Samuel Buglin, who is the um, artistic director at Cherry Arts in Ithaca. He actually translated this play for its English language debut up up in uh, upstate New York. And so, getting to work with him on this, uh, just as sort of he introduced me to, to you know, if you like that play, you might like some of these, and it really resonated because I think again our theater company, we are not wedded to a single type of storytelling or even content, right? Musicals, plays, new plays, revivals. It's more firmly making the case for why this should be told in a live theatrical medium and really leaning into the inherent conversation between performers, designers, audience. This is live. This is, there, there, is, there, there is a real-time conversation happening. Um, and often, again, with these European playwrights, it's less linear and it's less literal. So you can't, you couldn't stay on your couch and watch this on Netflix. This has to be experienced with our ensemble of storytellers, with the world that, that these designers are building. That That is sort of what, what our company strives to do. Oh, that's awesome. So what was it like developing the show then? So we've... It's, it's an interesting process where the, the, the text was written, but uh, the, the other re refreshing thing about European playwrights is they have a real like laissez-faire, hands-off, like we, we wrote this, now do whatever you want with it. I think it's a real gift to, and, and maybe I feel that way just as a director because it gives, it gives me a real sense of ownership over the text, but it's, there's, there's not this fragility that everything has to be sort of adorned and decorated and performed as written. So 
this text initially was was a bit longer. And I think working with some of our artists, working with um, Sam, who translated it, we have created the version of this text uniquely for this production. I think another director, another team of collaborators might might pare it down or refocus it in another way. But I think for us, it was about, uh, so maybe I should actually tell you about the play before sort of speaking about it in broad <laughs> terms. Uh, I understand that no one knows what this play is. It's, it's, it's told in three, it's a very fast and funny 75 minutes in the theater. Um, and it's, it's comprised mostly of three scenes, three distinct worlds that slowly start to have this sort of metatextual connect. They're, they're, they, they exist in a, in a universe that is not obliquely clear to, to anyone living inside each of those three scenarios, if that makes sense. The first scene is this group of sort of conspiracy theorists, um, government anarch or anarchists who are trying to create this, this new sort of um, political system and revolution to sort of upend the status quo. The second scene is a group of writers in a Hollywood writer's room trying to craft narratives around political conflict and uh, political uprising and um, notions of deep state control, again, under the guise of creating, you know, a Netflix miniseries or the next Fast and the Furious movie. You know, that's sort of what they think they're there to do. And that takes its own turns. And then the third scene is sort of prototypically this deep state organization who is sort of watching all of this from a distance, trying to control various aspects of political intervention and what are, you know, sort of the more sinister, quote unquote, themes of how much control do, does any of us actually have in our own lives and how much of this is being shaped by sort of these, these illusions of outside power brokers and forces. And sort of, so that the play, while, while touching into three distinct worlds, engages in one shared conversation about, in, I can't stress this enough, in a very weird and funny and light way, some of these topics which seem to be ever, ever present, ever relevant. Um, and because it's, because it's not specifically about the January 6th insurrection or it's, it's not specifically about COVID, you know, it, it's, it's rooted in a less realistic, or, or it's just not rooted in these specific events, which I think makes plays like this you can always make the case for why it's relevant, always make the case for what it connects to, to this audience, to this group of designers and this performers. Um, and I think activates it in a really exciting way that doesn't feel like we're watching a period piece about something that happened 20 years ago or something like that. Wow. I like the, the three different, the three different segments and it feels like they just keep progressing to something bigger and bigger. And then you arrive at that deep state moment and you're like, Oh, I was hoping we weren't going to end up here, but here we are. <laughs> right. And I think it plays, it plays on tropes of storytelling and sort of these expectations of, you know, the, I, I don't think this, by no means is this a realistic depiction of how power works in the world. But I think what it does do is it plays on our sort of maybe deepest fears about maybe there is this Illuminati that actually does control the presidents of different countries and sort of pop culture power brokers. And, you know, if these things were to exist, this sort of exit, this play examines the three at three different levels of coordination and scope and power. You know, you have grassroots people meeting in the basement of a cabin. You have sort of a more institutionalized quote unquote Hollywood elite 
that maybe actually has no significance to the to the machinations of the world. And then you have this 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 stereotype or grand idea of you know a Doctor Strange love nineteen you know Cold War sort of. If that makes any sense, I, I don't. I'm, I'm sort of losing the the like. I think it, it it engages with an audience's presuppositions about the world, and I think then taps into that and sort of then riffs in a very sort of satiric, stylized, surrealistic bent. Um, some of the sort of fantasies we might have about how how the world works the way it does. have you been working on this this piece because i know you mentioned wanting to take it to the edinburgh fringe festival back in so that that was the previous that was the play we had done in 2019 that sort of introduced uh, a lot of us oh okay okay no but i think because so we we were introduced to this play i think you know i keep saying during covid i don't know when that's going to end but it's just like during that period of time during uh, the early years yeah 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 yeah, (laughs) the dark ages um (laughs) So, a lot, you know, and I, as I'm sure anyone can listen and listen to this can understand, navigating the logistics of live theatrical production is sort of tricky. And uh, this company, we, we did a residency in the Brooklyn Navy Yard last summer. So we were, we were trying to get out and ahead and, and produce for whatever audiences wanted to go see and support live theater. Um, but we have been doing sort of scattered readings of the play, again, trying to massage the text, trying to really get what it, what is our take on this material. And then a couple months ago, we sort of, you know, the way the world, again, the way the world works, the new Ohio had a lovely window of availability. It's the same theater where we produced See You in 2019. Um, it's, it's the perfect sort of box for a play like this. It's an intimate space. It's a really interesting theater that has lovely natural sort of components that we're, we're leaning into. Um, and when that window opens, then it was like, okay, that's the go ahead. That's the sign that let's get this team together. Let's put this cast together and let's figure this out. So the actual process of this show in this iteration has been a lovely fast and furious couple months uh, a process not not the usual sort of lengthy uh you know in a perfect world when you get to really delineate and sort of step by step by step how something creates this is more this 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 window appeared and i think a lovely alchemy married to the the sort of the way that this play is written about just like groups of people in a room trying to figure it out that's been very much echoed in, you know in a very meta way with our cast and crew um and we're just having finding such delight and such silliness and such like genuine fun in, in such an interesting and um, not unorthodox, but the kind of play that you just don't get to see all the time. I love that. Oh, I'm getting all excited about it. Um, What is the message or thought that you were hoping your audiences will take away from, from the show? I think it's, it's a, it's a perfect kind of play that doesn't prescribe any, there's not a morality to this play. There isn't a, you leave and you understand that, you know, uh, systemic racism is bad or child abuse is bad or love is good. You know, certain things have very clear 
strong sort of like, we want you to leave with this in your hand and your heart and your pocket with this play. And the reason I'm so excited to, to bring it into the live theater, to present it to audiences is I think it, it presents sort of a artistic buffet that an audience can choose to take whatever they'd like, right? We present these three scenes. We present this sort of theatrical world that our ensemble is living in and telling the story and sort of the, the mutations of worldview and how this all coalesces into under a, a universal umbrella. But from there, the audience can take what they want. I mean, I think there are really compelling narratives about actually what it takes to create conflict in a way that the first time I read this, I was like, oh, this is about, you know, the Iraq war and sort of the lies that the American people were fed to create this military industrial complex. Then we took another pass at it and it was suddenly about Russia and Ukraine and the sort of narratives around why two countries go to war, who's the aggressor, who's the, you know, there's a lot of really interesting color in the language and the conversations and the debates that these, these characters have. So I think there's that, that real world component of just like to spur that, that the next time we're sort of fed a narrative about why we should do something, really trying to unpack the way that that was built. Then again, you could look at these three worlds and just understand the humanity of like, Yes, when I'm in my group of board members or when I'm at my church or when I'm in my, you know, acapella group at, at college, all of our groups break down in the same exact way. And there's a real humanity to seeing that like situations are kind of copy and pasted, regardless if you're in a boardroom or if you're, you know, at your kid's soccer game. Everything kind of functions more or less the same way because human beings are at the end of the day, pretty simple. Right. And it's like we get we get hurt. We lash out. We group onto these ideas that we are not willing to let go. We argue for something so long that we kind of forget why we're arguing about it. Uh, we prioritize uh, emotional love, physical love over maybe intelligent, well thought out idea. You know, there's, there's, there's so much that can undo what is simply maybe a good idea or the right idea. And I think that's something that an audience can take away too. But because it's so, we're, we're just sort of giving it, giving it away. And saying like, do with this what you want. You know, I don't think we're, a lot of plays, a lot of media purports to be important, right? See this because it's important and it will, it, it needs to be seen. And it, it, those things are, are gross to me. I think like the world tells you if something's important, right? 20 years down the road, you understand if what you've created is important. In the moment, all you can do is try and put out what you've created, put out a world that is honest to this text, that is activated by this specific group of collaborators. And then if an audience wants to do something with it, it's their prerogative. And I think that's the kind of conversations that I like to create. Because uh, who am I, who are any of us to like tell someone what to feel? We don't know what their experiences are. We don't know what their life is like. We don't, maybe, you know, people know sort of good and bad or our share, shared sort of moral, the things we, we, we all sort of tentatively agree to. So I think once you get beyond that, I think it's then a much more nuanced conversation about what, what actually is interested or activated by each individual audience member. Well, rounding out the first part of this uh, interview, I want to ask, who do you hope have access to the show? So accessibility is huge, has always been very important, uh, especially as we try and activate younger, more diverse audiences. Uh, I would love to take this opportunity to say that tickets are only $20 for students, <laughs> for anyone under 30. 
If you're not under 30, don't worry. Tickets are $25. Like this is not going to blow the bank. Um, we hope that that it's it's a and also if you do a little bit of research on TDF, tickets are available for $11, $12. Uh, we're on today ticks if there are any good discounts there. Um, we want this to we want this this the the option to to see this to be in front of as many people as possible because it, especially in a crowded marketplace um, of excellence, but you know, Broadway tickets are $100, $200, $300. That is, that's exceptional. We offer something that is a little bit, you know, you will not get lost in 1500 seats. This is very much an experience for the 75 audience members that we'll have every night. And that's the kind of, that, that intimacy between performer, designer, and audience is what we want. It is the only sort of aim of our company. And I think we do that by offering tickets that are cheaper. We do that by creating something that is not a three-hour slog, um, that doesn't take itself too seriously at all. I think this is this is light and quirky and weird. And if you are into those things, um, it's well worth your time to check us out the new Ohio, I think. Um, it's not, you know, I think we're trying to have the cake and eat it too of like, this, this is light and silly, but it's not fluff. It, it does deal with actually significant ideas, just in a very human way, right? This isn't, this isn't going to make you feel terrible when you leave the theater. Um, this isn't something where you have to learn and sit there. This is just an opportunity to sort of get in the sandbox and play with our actors and designers in creating something that transcends time, transcends space. You see very specific worldviews. And then however you want to put it together is up to, is up to you. And I think that leaving it in the hands of our audiences, I think hopefully uh, encourages people to come and, and make of it what they will and um, not feel like they have to have this prescribed experience uh, with us. switch gears now and give our uh, listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit better. And I want to start by asking what shows or composers or playwrights in the past have inspired you or are some of your favorites? That's a great question. So directors, this is such, this is such a terrible answer, but like the obvious parallel for anyone who's seen any of our stuff, uh, Evo Van Hove, it's a guy that I think is extremely interesting because he clearly has uh, an approach to theater that that emphasizes emotionality and how how we can viscerally click into an experience in a way that runs parallel to the text in a way that I I, I think is genuinely more impressive than a lot of other work today because what it requires is sort of this commitment to not non literal scenarios, not four wall, realistic sets, uh, a real conversation between design components and how that, inter how that interacts with, with a performance style and how that interacts with, with an actual story that's trying to be told. So I think a lot of the work that we do, a lot of the way that I approach theatrical storytelling is to try and figure out what the story is that's being told and then how to best evoke that in a real time, visceral way. And sometimes those two things are exactly 100, 180 degrees apart. Right, you could be doing a play about 
that on the page is about uh, like the, the the very first production that this company did in 2016 was Shakespeare's Richard III. Not a groundbreak, you know, not a groundbreaking choice by any means, but in telling that story of war, deceit, deception, and murder, we sort of built it inside uh, a butcher shop and sort of brought very visceral mm-hmm. themes of blood, um, the plasticity, you know, the, the sort of texture of ceramic tile and plastic hanging sheets, as if you're in like this cold, uh, a, 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 you know, an industrial refrigerator. And I thought, and again, not apologizing, we're saying, yes, inside of this, this story is being told. And I think audiences are way more intelligent than people, than a lot of contemporary producers give them credit for. And I think how many more stories would be more immediately visceral and sort of accessible if we removed it from, well, if this is being told in a, you know, a living room in Long Island, why does it have to look that way? Why why does it, you know, I think the theatrical medium is about meeting an audience's imagination in the middle and sort of requiring something from them. This is a conversation. If you just want a passive experience, that's what film and TV is for, which also activates certain kinds of storytelling, right? So... Evo, I think, is great. The, uh, but the thing about Evo that I don't think works all the time is I think sometimes he doesn't care if his audiences actually understand any of it, which I think is sometimes where a directors like that who are so involved with creating the, 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 the sandbox almost forget about the audience experience. And I am a big proponent of creating shows that are exciting for young people, are exciting for critics and theater-minded audiences, but are also accessible for my my family in New Jersey to come and see, and also accessible for my cousin and her friends who work in, you know, finance and sales to come and see. I don't think there should be sort of this cultural test at the door to say like, hey, do you understand, are you a high-minded intellectual? Then come see this. No, no, no. I think anyone should be able to walk off the street and be able to then absorb this story in an authentic way. And I think all we try and do, it's mostly designed forward, is to say, what what is the world that allows this to communicate to someone who maybe has never seen a play before? And I think that's a, that, that is just stretching the, 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 the bounds of realism uh, for me. Um, that was such a long-winded question. You asked, who do I like? I like lots of people. Um, I, I wish there were more... Um, original musicals written by rock and pop artists. Um, I think it's, when it, when it works, Elton John is a great example. Cindy Lauper is a great example. People who are writing original scores for their shows in a vernacular that is genuinely authentic and accessible to people is so exciting. And, and I mean, and that comes obviously with the rise of like music theater written for in a pop culture landscape, you know, Jonathan Larson, Paskin Paul. But I wish there was a little bit more courage. You know, it's always exciting. I wish David Bowie had written an original musical. How great would that have been? Um, I don't want to see your music in a jukebox show, but write me, write me your thing. Um, Josh Harmon is a playwright I love. Uh, uh, Samuel Hunter, I think. Uh, Case for the Existence of God at Signature was one of the greatest things I have ever seen. And it was two guys in, a, in, in one small room for 90 minutes, like that is a transcendental, beautiful piece of theater. And it wasn't about lights and it wasn't about hydraulic lifts and it wasn't about a hundred sets coming in and out. It was just simple human storytelling. And like, yeah. we need more of that. And we need less, less sort of like hoping an audience won't understand that the book to the shootbox musical is terrible. So we're just gonna slide out a hundred sets and 
do some pyrotechnics. Like, I think audiences are, are smarter than that. And um, I just wish there was, you know, I, I love commercial theater. So I wish in, on our biggest possible stages, producers and directors were a little bit riskier in challenging the form, especially when protected with something that is very safe, like a, a catalog of music that we all love or this movie that we all love. You were, we are meeting you on good faith terms. So surprise us. So tell me why this is taking place in the theater. So upend my expectations and subvert my, subvert my sort of like belief in what this wants to be. You're the one creating this. So tell me what it wants, you know what I mean? I think the vineyard is exceptional in yes. realizing the simplicity, the, the storytelling, you know, Kimberly Kimbo, I liked, I liked a lot. But I thought the band's visit was sort of like the the perfect capstone of like what that kind of storytelling can be. Yes. It wasn't small by any means. You know, they had a turntable, they had projections, but the storytelling was so simple. Here's a small band playing beautiful music that is not heard a ton on, on Broadway stages. Here is a simple story told in 24 hours. There's no flashy distractions other than just like genuinely awe-inspiring performances. Yeah. And that show was a huge success and made its money back and then toured the country. Like why we are not trying to design and it was based on a movie. Right. So I'm not, you know, at Kimberly Kimbo was based on a play. It's like the, I'm all for adapting pre-existing source material. You know, it started, you know, Oklahoma was based on a play, right? It's just how we do it actually requires consideration and thought and theater artists who understand the medium yeah. and, you know, contra, contra, contrasting that with something like you know we're going to throw the devil wears prada up on stage as quickly as we can and then i think you see well that's sort of uh tread water in place in chicago because it didn't know what it wanted to be it wasn't making a case for why this is, exists in the theater and you know you're always going to come up short to an adaptation of, to, to this movie so it's i think creating something that has to, to fit in a different box and really changing the building blocks of that for the theatrical medium. The Vineyard seems to just do that in a way that these other nonprofits and, and commercial producers just have, have yet to really firmly click into. Yeah, we're audience members. We'll come in, we'll finish the sentences. We can sit there and be engaged. Wow, sorry, wait, wait. I just heard myself. Delete, delete. I mean, you can keep it, whatever, but it's the Atlantic, not the Vineyard. I apologize. The Atlantic Theater Company. Oh, they, they did Bands Visit. They did Kimberly Kimba. Sorry. Vineyard did Title of Show and Scottsboro Boys. Also great musicals. Yes. Just getting them conflated in my head. But yeah, we, audience members, we can come in, we can finish the sentences. We are all about using our imagination. And when you let us do that, you get so, you allow us to have such, you allow us to have a much more heightened uh, experience. I just and there's an ownership. There's an there's an ownership when an audience gets to film the sentence. It becomes something unique for them. Yeah, that isn't a mass experience. Copy and paste it to everyone. They, I, I think, the beauty of of just a simple theatrical experiment is that everyone gets to sort of read it on their own terms. Yeah, and I think when we create these machines around storytelling and capitalization and commercialization, like. It's, we're no longer interested with having those one-on-one -on -one conversations with audience members. Yep. And I think coming back to George Kaplan at the New Ohio, it's all about this, this conversation tonight with this small group of people and, and knowing and celebrating that we can't, that, that will not be replicated on a mass scale. And that if, if you are genuinely curious in finishing the, the sentence, 
set up by the text and the material. This is the kind of theater that we should be championing and supporting. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you, have you, I know you've been busy with the show, but have you seen any great theater you might recommend to our listeners uh, as of late? I think Kimberly Kimbo was very sweet and very charming and a great case for like simple storytelling. Um, also, more the more musicals written by the two of them, the better. I'm a huge, uh, you know, I'm not above firing up Shrek the Musical on Netflix and having a great night. Um, I think... I would say I, these are not indiv- these are not plays that are running anymore. So I don't think it behooves anyone to recommend them. But like, you know, David Cromer is a guy that I'll follow anywhere. These playwrights, Sam Hunter, Josh Harmon, I'll follow them. David Yazbek, anything new that he's writing, I'll listen. To. I mean, a, a lot of this is Band's Visit and uh, Case of the Existence of God. Um, I, I would I think it's I think it's more about finding the theater artists that that you like individually and being open and available to letting them experiment, right? I think yeah. uh, sometimes maybe there's an expectation, especially with bigger things that, that we know what this is gonna be. So sort of we're getting ahead of what the play is allowed to be or what, what, what's, what it's trying to become. And it, no, we walk into that theater and for us, it has to be one thing. Um, and I think, you know, trying to allow a little bit more room for not failure and not, I'm not, no one should have a bad time at the theater, but I think like, let, let the boxes around some of your favorite art and artists, give them the room to sort of discover and, um, and grow. I would say, I don't, I have no, I haven't seen that much recently, which is not a great answer. favorite part about working in the theater it's it's got to be the collaboration i think i am definitely someone who like i think all of my ideas are great and that perfect and we go into the rehearsal room and it's just like do my ideas and then what i love is getting there and expressing these ideas and then having collaborators performers designers understand maybe the platonic idea of where this, where something wants to go or sort of the arc or bent of something, but then everyone refining it and making it way better than my original stupid idea, right? And I think that is why you try and get the most creative, interesting, uh, diverse opinions in a room is to sharpen the, the blade of what, I, what, what already excites you. So like, I love working with other smart people who all understand, you know, we, we have to agree on where this is going but then actually how we get there and actually how we make it mean anything, I think is, is shaped by just everyone in a room. And I think theater invites that and allows it because of the rehearsal process, because of the, the way that the, the, these rooms are built and, and the sort of just like the structure of, the, of this, this industry versus something that is, feels a little bit more start and stop or disconnected or, you know, some of these other, other industrial machines just I don't think invite as much a fluid collaboration between partners and like I, I that is what gets me so excited every day of of getting anything up on its feet is figuring out by the end of today this idea will be exponentially better than than what I think it is well I want to ask you my favorite question which is what is your favorite theater memory um oh super easy okay I was in 
The Music Man. My regards to your wife. I was in The Music Man in uh, sixth grade? Sixth grade. First musical. Like, first like musical that I think I'd been a part of. And, you know, the curtain rises after the overture and it's Rock Island and it's these guys on the train. And like, I will never, ever forget the feeling of that curtain rising, right? You get the floodlights, you get the orchestra pit in front of you, you get your the audience of your parents and your friends and your neighbors and just that sense of like, and now the story begins. And I think that's the thing I'm chasing with everything I do is to get back to that like shot of adrenaline of this, this you know, gross plush red curtain just slowly rising because, you know, a 16 year old is like in the wings. Um, but I think that's the purest sort of, it's little moments like that. I remember, you know, the first time, one of my earliest memories of a Broadway show is the turntable in Les Mis. And that worked for a very specific reason, right? That show is so successful. It's operatic, it's huge. It speaks to you on an emotional level. And I think that's, again, the sort of how to get everything to resonate as if it was the scope and scale and, and sort of the, the operatic stakes of something like that. Also, like nothing beats for anyone who's listening who's done summer stock in a, you know, 100 seat theater that was built 100 years ago and you're doing shows for a week and your audience is probably 80 year olds. There's that, that sense of community is so, there, I mean, there, there's a reason why a hundred farces have been written about it, right? But it's just, it's the silliest reminder of like what we do, which is to put on a weird, silly mustache, go on, go on stage, say some lines, hopefully you tell the story or you make someone laugh or you create a moment of suspense, then you get off and do a hundred quick change. Like the, 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 the magic of, again, it's all collaboration. It's all working with dressers and designers and the, the, but, it, but it's in the moment and you, you feel active and you're participating in something bigger than yourself. And that's the thing I think I'm always chasing with this work is to, to create these worlds, to create these communities that, that justify the, the artist's time and justify why an audience is there. We've asked you to come share the space, celebrate with us for an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours. And, and what, what, what can this be for all of us together today, right now in this room is what I keep going back to. Are there any other productions or projects that you or your company have coming on the pipeline that we might be able to plug? Not necessarily. The, the, the company sort of is, we're very much a pop-up theater company. And, uh, we, you know, we've been producing once or twice a year for the last six years, which is really exciting. Uh, but we'll have to, you know, we're going to get George Kaplan down the pipeline and then finish that out. Um, for me, I am working uh, with a producing partner. Uh, and we will be creating a new version of the American Psycho musical um, written by Duncan Sheik and Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. Uh, that is going to be a next, next year um, on a significantly larger scale. But we are, I am so thrilled to take a crack at that material, which I think is brilliant and mm -hmm. cutting and depraved. And to me is very much a contemporary to Cabaret and Sweeney Todd these sort of period pieces that are sort of through this delightfully gross trip expose some really sinister and silly things about society. Um, and like, my God, am I obsessed with that show? So that's, that's, a, that's a next year project. Um, and right now, everything is about George Kaplan. And speaking of which, if our listeners want more information about George Kaplan or about yourself, how can they find that or reach out to you? 
Sure. Everything is available on our website, bridgeproductiongroup.org. Um, you can also, I'm sure, Google George Kaplan, New York City. Uh, I ho hope we would come up. Uh, but there's information about ticketing, again, cheap and accessible. Uh, there's information about our phenomenal cast and creative team. Um, my bio's up there somewhere if anyone cares. Uh, I have a website, maxhuntersite.com. You know, check it out if you want. Um, but otherwise, I'd, like the best way would be come see me at the New Ohio. I'll be there. I'll be there checking people in. I'll sell you some drinks. Um, I, I will be a presence around that theater because I am so excited to sort of champion this, this intensely theatrical, intimate, weird piece. And I'm so excited to sort of get that out and, and, and experience that with audiences. My guest today has been Max Hunter, who is the director of the upcoming show, George Kaplan, the exciting upcoming show, George Kaplan, which is playing November 15th through December 3rd at the New Ohio Theater. And that's located at 154 Christopher Street here in New York. Uh, tickets and more information can be found at bridgeproductiongroup.org. You can also find more information about Max at maxhuntersite.com. And I highly encourage all of you to quickly and hurriedly get your tickets. I'm sure they're going to go fast. I know we're going to hurry and get on our tickets here on our end to see this fantastic three-act show, but short show, but comical and whimsical and just all-out fun show that's it sounds like the epitome of off-Broadway, but fun. So I can't wait to see it. But fun. Off-Broadway, but fun. Yes. Word, <laughs> truer words have never been spoken. This is a fun, silly, weird romp. And if that excites you, by God, buy a $25 ticket and please come see us. Absolutely. That's a steal of a deal right there. Plus drinks. Plus drinks. Let's go get Plus drinks. drinks. Well, Max, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor speaking with you. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate what you do. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep your masks on, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is DJ by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar, Quantum Jazz, Midnight Suns, and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you'll find all the information about our backstage pass. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you. <laughs>